Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you've called us here together to hear from your word, that you have reached down to give us, to reveal yourself to us through these words that you have um, recorded for us through faithful men who are moved by the Holy Spirit. And they all point to Jesus and our need of him and our union with him because of his finished work. And we pray that as we study this morning, you would deepen that trust of Christ in our hearts, that he alone is enough. Everything else is gravy. We pray that you would continue to knit our hearts together, to unify us under this one great purpose, to love Jesus more and to reflect him in our relationships with each other and in our proclamation of him in the world. We thank you for this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, we are in Exodus 34, verse, verses 10 through 28. Exodus 34, verses 10 through 28. And we're going to see today the giving of the covenant a second time. And we have gone through the covenant before, the giving of the covenant before, the first time. Uh, it was a very long travel through it. I, I know you probably remember it a long time ago. Uh, chapters 23 through 24, we spent several weeks on, on the giving of the, of the law. Um, but this section is a summary, really, of the most important elements of that law. And God is giving it to them again. Um, there's a difference, though, than the first giving and the second giving. We'll see kind of how that, uh, how that plays out. Let's look at verse 30, uh, chapter 34. Verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited... You eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt." All that open the womb are mine. 
all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Well, how does this renewal begin? Where does he start? What's the first thing he focuses on? On what is the first thing he... Never mind. I, never mind. What is the first thing he focuses on? defy you. There's a rule book. I've seen it. He says that he's about to tell him a covenant, so listen up. Okay, he starts with an expression of what he's going to do. And what does he say? What, what is the thing that he focuses on first? Let's see, I knew it was the first. After the covenant? Yeah. Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. What's the evidence of the, his part of the covenant? And why is that important to even say that? What's that? Well, eventually, but just, just as in the text right now, let's go through what it says for these people at this time, and then yes, you're right, it does. But we'll get there, we'll get there later. It, it always does, by the way. <laughs> why is it a big deal? He said, I will do marvels. What, what is... It sets them apart. It sets them apart. How? By showing that their God can do all these things. It, it shows that the other gods are futile and nothing. They're dumb and deaf. They're dumb. The other gods are, are, are not there. They're dumb, deaf. You worship an idol, doesn't speak. I speak. That's all there. Why is it important that he's doing marvels? What had just happened? They betrayed him. They broke the covenant. They broke the covenant, and there was some discussion between God and Moses about a certain consequence of them breaking the covenant. What was it? <coughs> I can't be with you, right? I can't dwell with you. And Moses pleaded on their behalf, pled on their behalf, pleaded, pled on their behalf, uh, 
for God to be in their midst. Why was that important to Moses? Because God had promised that he would do it. Promised he would do it. And it makes them distinct, right? You have a living God, a God who speaks, not like all the other gods of all the other pagan lands. This God speaks and he's commanded us and he works on our behalf. Watch, we're different. It's distinct. And, and he said, you've lost it, you've ruined it. Can't do that, I can't dwell among you, you're stiff-necked, I'll, I'll consume you. So Moses pleads, God reveals his nature, I, I will have mercy on him, I will have mercy, I will have compassion on him, I have compassion. And he has compassion on the people. He says, okay, I will dwell in their midst. He's confirming that here. This is the expression of, this is, I'm renewing the covenant, I will be in your midst, this is going to happen. As I promised, this is going to happen, and here's what, here are the terms, again, of the covenant. He's introducing it. He confirms his agreement to what Moses had sought, that God would be in their midst. This, this idea of uh, do marvels, you see this in, 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 uh, verses ten, in verse 10. Do marvels, another translation says perform marvels. The work of the Lord, uh, the thing I will do, or I am doing, is another way to translate that, underscores that all these things, all these wonders, in fact, belong to God. He's the one doing it. All the stuff that they've seen before, all the stuff they're going to see, it's Him. Why is that important to bring out? It's a testament of who he is. He's all-powerful. And it's a non-conditional covenant. Okay, a non-conditional covenant. Meaning he's, it doesn't matter what the people do or don't do because they're always going to betray God. It is God who is enacting the covenant. He's the one that's holding his end of the bargain. Mm, yeah, he's going he's gonna to be faithful to his part of it. Uh, yes. Uh, why is it important to draw out that he's the one doing the marvels, though? Why do you think that is? We see a lot of that in this passage. Why do you think that's important? How have they breached the covenant? What have they done? By making a physical representation of God. They made a golden calf, a physical representation of something they called a God, and they, and they said, this is your God, O Israel. By saying that, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, they said. They started attributing things, they started attributing things of God to an idol. Yeah. And, and he is saying, I'm the one that does this stuff. Not, not any golden calf, not any Canaanite god, nothing, nothing else. It's me that does this. Observe what I command, he says in verse, in verse 11. Other, other translations have said, guard for yourself that which I am commanding you. Guard for you. I'm sorry, my head always goes back to our discussion through stewardship. Do you remember the four commands that were given at creation to man? First thing that man hears when he's created is, this is who you are, this is what you're called to do. And it is uh, subdue, increase, chapter 1, the kingly duties, and guard and keep, those are in chapter 2, the priestly duties. And he uses that same language here, observe what I command, guard what I'm commanding you. Be serious about this. We see it here again. What is the focus of verses 11, the commands he gives in verses 11 through 17? What's the focus? What's he bringing out here? Holiness. Holiness in contradistinction, in contra contradiction, con contrast. There's the, there's the word I'm looking for, contrast. What, to what? To other nations. He wants them to be different and distinct people. There's true worship and there's, wait, wrong hand. There's true worship and there's false worship, Right? 
Sinestra is Latin, means evil, so it's left hand, so you know. Yeah, it's very important. Um, there's true worship, and she was looking at me like, wow, what does it matter with the hand? Um, true worship and false worship, right? And he goes through what is false worship first. It's inappropriate. This doesn't really say anything content-wise. It doesn't say anything new, but it's much more explicit than it was in the first giving of the commandment, first giving of the law. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Let's try this again. Maybe you should have it spelled out in a checklist. Uh, here, and, and that's what he gives. You have a rut in your heart already yeah. that you're likely to fall back into right. if you don't take it really seriously and guard against it. And guard it because of the rut that's already grooved in it. Yeah, you're right. I, I think that's right. They're, they're not to even make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land. Why? Kind of oppressive. Why not well, make a treaty? It's the gods and the idols of these other people mm -hmm. that infiltrated the camp, and so you have to set clear parameters so that doesn't happen. They're in treaty with Yahweh. They're in covenant with Him. Don't make another covenant that's going to cause you to breach your covenant with Him. Well, come on. We're just being nice. We're not slaughtering their children and their animals. What, what's, why? Distinctly, the, the, them making a covenant with the other people would then be breaking the covenant with God. Right, uh, because so of this command. specifically spelling it out. Right. He knows that it would happen if, even if he didn't spell it. I mean, well, yeah. He could know it would happen if, if he sure. didn't spell it out, so it's spelled out. So. What's the language he uses on this? He's a jealous guy. He's a jealous guy. It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. It's the, it's the, you know, like the squid guy in Star Wars 6, you know, it's a trap, you know, the, the thing, anyway. It's a trap, it's a snare. Sorry, Star Wars kicked this morning, I, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a snare. The idea is the, uh, of, a, of, a, of a hidden trap that a bird gets caught in and, and it wraps around its neck and pins it to the ground. That kind of just springs up. It's a, it's, you think it looks good, hey, it's a worm, it's an early, I'm an early bird, here it is. And it just gets you. It looks good, but it's a snare. This word snare or trap is always or m many times linked with idolatry. It's even linked with idolatry in the New Testament. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8. I just want to take a little detour here. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about uh, food, uh, food given to idols, consecrated to idols. He talks about Christian conscience how we deal with one another in our freedom before Christ or in Christ in relation to cultural things. 1 Corinthians 8. I don't want to read all of it. Well, maybe I do. Um, look at specifically in, in 9. But to, he, he says, you may know that the, the argument is it doesn't matter if we eat meat sacrificed to idols because we know they don't exist anyway. So what's the point? Well, it's, a, it's a silly cultural thing. We know it doesn't exist. Let's just eat the meat. Some other people who come out of idolatry were very offended by meat sacrificed to idols because they remembered their past. They remembered what they had used this meat for and, and kind of the, the worship of other gods. And so they were very offended whenever other Christians would eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. 
Paul says, I know there's no other gods. You know there's no other gods. But people have a weaker, have a groove in their heart. Uh, this is a temptation for them. You may know that this is false. You might have right theology. You understand there are no gods. But because of the weakness of the heart of your brother, don't do it. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, verse 7. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. They really have this idea that there's... And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Don't, don't be a snare to their conscience. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. The, the, the Greek word there is also used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, for snare. That it's not a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against your brother? You sin against Christ. Notice the identity, how we treat one another. Even though I have this right, if I wound my brother's conscience, I'm not just wounding him. I'm sinning against Christ. The identity of Christ with his people, again. Don't be a snare. Through your freedom, don't be a snare. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I wanted to go here just to show you that this whole idea of stumbling, we don't have metal idols, well... Most of the culture does not have metal idols. Um, they're, they're paper. Uh, they don't have metal idols that, that, that we worship today. But idolatry is not just a bunch of smoke in a room of people dancing around around a, a calf. Idolatry takes all kinds of forms. Even our freedom can be an idolatry. Our freedom in Christ. Um, I really want to talk about this on Sunday morning, I guess, but... the, the there's, a, there's kind of a thing in reform circles type people about drinking. I can drink. I'm not, you know, I'm baby Baptist, but I'm reformed. Yes, you're right. You're not worse off for drinking a beer. Or you're not better for drinking a beer. But if it offends your brother, be careful that you're not a stumbling block. Right? Don't be a snare to the conscience of others who are in, in, are in Christ. Because you have a friend who was used to be an alcoholic, mm-hmm. and I know when y'all went to lawyer things and there was free flowing alcohol everywhere. Right. You wouldn't touch even a drop because you, uh, because of your respect for him. I didn't want to wound his it wound his conscience. And other people who come out of alcoholic homes or things like that, there, yeah. there's, a, there's a scar there. Right. So though we may have the freedom to do it, and that's just one. That's just problem. one thing. I'm just picking that because it's kind of a thing around here, but I want, to be, uh, I want to be mindful of the freedom that I have in relation to the conscience of my brother, right? Okay, 
Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 8 here. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, we need to be humble about what we think we know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying what God is saying, what Moses is saying. It is loving God and those whom he loves, not mere theological knowledge, that is a defining characteristic of God's chosen people. It is loving God and those whom he loves, not mere theological knowledge, that is, def- that is a defining characteristic of God's chosen people. How, we, how the community treats each other. Is it building up in love or are we, are we pounding on our theological knowledge? All right, turn back to Exodus. We'll, we'll flip back over. A little detour. I just thought we'd address that with the snare. Verse 13 and 14. He gives instruction to the people to keep them, falling in, to keep them from falling into that snare. What does he tell them to do? <laughs> now, now, little Canaanite. This, this can't be... No, That's bad. Let's persuade. What does he say? He says, destroy it. And not just destroy it. Obliterate it. Kill it. Um, th- there's altars, pillars, an ashram, th- these little poles kind of a fertility right thing. won't go into it on Sunday morning, but it's kind of a thing. And they were to cut them down, destroy them, burn them. It all goes. Why? Why? What does he point to? Why is this necessary? What does he say? He's a jealous God. Does that language sound familiar to you? He's referencing the first two commandments. No other God before me. Right? No carved image, for I'm jealous. You act this way based upon who I've revealed myself to be. I'm it. Inappropriate worship would say there's more than just me. And you're to destroy the land that you're going in. There should be no rival for the heart of Israel. No treaty with the Canaanites. Because that would simply introduce idolatry to the people. Look at verse 15. I found this incredibly interesting. So much so that I almost made the whole thing about it, but I didn't. How does he refer to Canaanite worship? Verses 15 and 16. What does he, what does he refer to? it? Harlotry. Harlotry. Whoring in the, in the ESV. Now, I usually think of adultery or harlotry as uh, taking a lover that you don't have a right to, to whom you don't belong, right? He uses that language about the Canaanite worship of their own gods. Why is that whoring? That's their god. I understand in relation to Israel, going after other gods, that would be the language he uses. Why would he say that about the Canaanite? Whether they are his chosen or not, because by virtue of them being his creation, he is due the honor and glory. They're in his image. Mm-hmm. He created them. 
They drink His water. They breathe His air. They eat His food. And yet they want to worship other gods. What does that tell you about all of humanity in relation to a covenant with God? We're all under covenant. The Buddhist in his temple right now is a covenant breaker. The Muslim right now is a covenant breaker. The liberal Methodist bishop this morning is a, is a covenant breaker. An atheist is a covenant breaker. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who are breaking the covenant of God and there are those who have been renewed in the covenant of God because we're all born breakers. Kevin, that's so intolerant. I didn't write it. I'm not going to say it. It could be a reference to the type of practice that they had with temple prostitution and those kinds of things, but I, I, think, that, I think that that's ultimately what's going on here. And then, in case we're unclear why God is spending so much time on what they're to do with the Canaanites whenever they go in land and not be getting into idolatry, and, and really why this is being brought out, he says something in verse 17. What is that? Don't do what you already did. Don't make a carved image. Don't make a molten idol. You get the feeling there's still kind of a, a shadow over this because of their, break, of their break of the covenant. Then he goes into this. What is true worship? He's talked about what's false worship, how they're to respond to false worship. But then he goes into what is true worship. Verse 18. He points to a series of commands regarding true worship. He, he looks, looks back to what he's already told them about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the dedication of the firstborn, Sabbath, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering. First of all, verse 18, what is a Feast of Unleavened Bread? We talked about this a long time too. What is that feast? Unleavened Bread. What's another name for it? Passover. Remember they were to sacrifice the lamb, they were to eat the whole lamb, not leave any till the morning, and they were also to have... Um, bitter herbs with it and then, all, and then a bread that had not risen because it was to show their haste to get out of Egypt the night that the angel of death had passed over. So, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Yeah, why is it placed here though? Right after the whole thing on false worship, this is the first thing he goes to, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why do you think that is? Passover. I feel like it's a reminder of, hey, I brought you out of Egypt. Yeah. It's, it's a testimony to who God is after saying, don't do these things because I'm God. I've done this for you. Here's your reminder of what I did for you. And these other so-called gods have not. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm the one who has done marvelous things in your midst and will do again. Remember what I did in Egypt. It was Yahweh and no other God, including the golden calf, who delivered them from Egypt. And then he gives a repetition of the laws of the firstborn. Again, this is another example of the distinction of Israel apart from the pagan nations around them. It's a remembrance of the redemption that took place in Passover. What happened to the firstborn of those around them on Passover night? Great song on the Passover. 
starts out with a, a meal, an audio of a meal. Um, and and, and Shailen's playing the father character, and he says, Honey, can you pass the lamb? Just starts this whole thing, and, and, and the little girl's crying, I don't want to eat fluffy, I don't want to eat fluffy, you know? And, and the brother goes, Mmm, tastes like chicken to me. And then the girl runs off and becomes this thing where he tells the whole story of, of Exodus. And it ends with him forgetting the timing of the thing, running back into the house saying, Moses said get rid of all this stuff, and we still got food on the table, and he's throwing it into the fire because he's worried about his son dying because he's not complied with the Passover feast. All the land lost. There was not a house in which the Lord did not strike the firstborn child. They lost them. And yet here he says, I redeemed yours through the land. The firstborn is mine. It's an example of their distinction among the pagan nations around them. What about the Sabbath? Any exceptions for them to... to uh, Honor the Sabbath, the really busy times, you know, the, 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 the plowing and then the harvest. Any, any exceptions? That idiom there, from plowing time to harvest time, is the whole calendar year. It's a merism. The two busiest times of the year, too, by the way. A, even tax season can be busy and you just kind of plow through. Sorry. So glad you're here. You're being faithful. Um, verses 22 through 24. Both the weeks... The Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of Booze. What was that about? Do you remember? It's a, it's a reminder of, a of them being in the wilderness. They lived in tents for the time during those. When they were settling land, they went back to live in tents for a while for that week to remind them of the time that God provided for them in their sojourning, in, their, in the wilderness. And then the Feast of Ingathering, that's when the harvest comes in. It's a, it's a time of Thanksgiving at the end of the year. It's Thanksgiving. Uh, for, for the time uh, of God's faithfulness to them. They were to present themselves three times a year to ultimately Jerusalem, but, but to the Lord. Um, and he says something very interesting. He promises to restrain the heart of those who would covet their land while they're away from it, while they're you know, meeting, presenting themselves to God at one place. Their land's left unguarded. And he says, if you're faithful to do this, I'm going to restrain the coveting heart of your neighbors so that they won't take your land. Interesting definition or a, a expression of sovereignty that he restrains the heart of a coveting person. All right, and then we see that the um, in verses 25 through 26, the second giving of that command that the sacrifice is not to remain until morning. Specifically, he's talking about the Passover. And then he says again... I found this interesting. Why would he say this again? Why would he record this again in the renewal? Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's like out of nowhere. I get the, I get the sacrifices. I get, the, I get the, the feasts. I get the Passover. I get the whole thing. Don't boil a goat in mother's milk. What is up with that? From what we went over the first time with that, it was a reference to... He circles back around again to inappropriate worship, doesn't he? It's a polemic. It's a, it's a statement against a Canaanite fertility practice of using what gives life as a means of death. That's, that's, the, that's the statement there. Um, something that clicked with me, I want to go back to this real quickly. 
Um, as I was reading it this morning, I did not see this last night, but I did see it this morning. When he talks about the firstborn, look at verse 20. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. If it's inconvenient for you to sacrifice to redeem your human son, too bad. Don't break his neck. Notice the value of life of the image of God over an animal. And you'll see this later whenever they're sacrificing their firstborn children to Molech. That just because it's inconvenient, because they want a better um, harvest. Apparently God is not enough here. And they're, and they're seeking other ways to worship and they, and they devalue the lives of their children. But he very clearly says, if you want to sacrifice for the donkey, that's fine. It's too much. Break its neck. Do not... You don't use that logic on a child. Yeah. The, uh, the picture I see a, uh, a very, very large picture of Christ right there. Was firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Mm-hmm. This is the lamb for us. Otherwise, you shall break its neck. Mm-hmm. If it was not redeemed, it's killed. Mm-hmm. But then, exactly what you said, your firstborn son is so precious that you have to redeem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and, that, and I think it's a clear expression of life, and certainly I think you see that in, in the work of Christ as well as, as, um, as, as the image of God. He didn't redeem angels, right? He didn't, he didn't uh, fallen angels stayed fallen. So what does he do? He tells Moses then to write the law in a book, like he did earlier, and then God writes the ten words on the tablets cut by Moses. And he says, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. What is he, why does he say it that way? I made a covenant with you and with Israel. Right. Right. And now he's adding in Israel. There's a, there's a statement here. Some of the guys, smart guys will say, oh, he's singling out Moses, elevating Moses, you know, and, and he's really showing its distinction between Moses and Israel. I, I don't buy that. I think that he's doing just what he said he would do. I will be in their midst. They will be my people. I will be their God. He's renewing that commitment to them. All right. All mankind are covenant breakers and need a covenant renewal. I think that idea, to me, is just so profound here. Um, renewal comes, and we see it in this passage, through a series of remembrances. What has God done? What has He done? The renewal comes not through trying to pick up where we failed and then make up as best we, we can uh, with the rest of our lives. That ship has sailed. The, the renewal for covenant breakers has come in Christ... And it's come in a truly wondrous thing. That God came in human skin. He sweat. He was cold. He was obedient. He was obedient in a way I could never be. That you could never be. He was obedient for those he is calling for covenant renewal because he fulfilled the covenant for his people. And then being 
fully God and truly man, he was uniquely fit to pay the price for the covenant breaking of his people and purchase renewal when renewal was impossible for us to buy. How does it come? It comes by, same way it does here, by remembering and relying upon what God has done for us in Christ, what God and God alone has done for his people in Christ and Christ alone. By the time of Christ, the Passover, uh, along with all the other feasts, um, was a, was a, a, a celebration uh, and a time of remembrance. Specifically with the Passover, it was a remembrance of what God had done for his people in delivering them from the, in the Exodus. But at the time of Christ, it was also a, a looking forward of a messianic hope. The prophets had prophesied that, a, that a, a Messiah would come and redeem them and restore them. And, and so Passover was a view toward that as well. And they, um, in the ceremony, they would sing the second part of what was called the Halal, specifically Psalm 118.26. It goes like this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Jesus. Palm Sunday. What an odd providence of God. You're talking about Passover and what it means in first century, and we have within that ceremony Palm Sunday expression of the saints who were putting down, or the people in the city, were putting down palms on the ground he was riding in on a donkey. Their cloaks were on it. He was sitting on the donkey. Pagan kings took their rule by riding on big stallions. Large horses. Beautiful. Bred for that purpose. Hebrew kings took their rule riding in on donkeys as an act of humility. And so you see this picture then, and even in the Passover, anticipating Christ. Jesus is the firstborn son set apart. Jesus is the Passover lamb slaughtered for our deliverance and our nourishment. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus protects and provides for us as we sojourn in this city of man, waiting for the city of God that will be ushered in at his ingathering of all his people. Covenant renewal is trusting in Christ that he is enough and that there is no other deliverer. What's the response to that? What's the response to that? In joy of his renewal, we're called again to guard his commands and reflect him. If you love me, obey my commands, he says. There's a sad indictment against Israel. Um, when they were taken away because of their unfaithfulness to Babylon, to Assyria, uh, the, the remainder of their pagan worship was left standing. The high places were there, all the Asherah poles, all that stuff was still there that they had engaged in. And when they resettled the land, uh, Babylon in particular, sent people back to live in the land from other countries. And they're like, hey, our stuff's already here. So they started worshiping their pagan gods with the familiar, with the familiar instruments of that, that Israel had prepared for them to come into the land and, and worship. And one of the... Um, one of the Babylonian kings sent back a priest from Samaria. He says, go teach people the, the, the laws of the gods of that land so that we don't offend any gods and have any trouble there. Go, go back and, and, and teach them. And what did he teach them? Fear of God 
and to serve other gods. That's what he taught. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. We trust him alone. I cannot fear Yahweh and serve other gods. I cannot fear Yahweh and fear that Obamacare must be repealed, that I must help take back America. We seek to persuade, yes, but our hope is not in the American dream. It never has been. I cannot love Christ and despise his people. I have to love whom he loves. First John, our study on Wednesday night, we see that again and again and again. If you love God, you love his people. If you don't, John says you're a liar. I'm a liar if I don't love his people. I cannot rely upon God alone and then show that I'm not relying on him at all because I don't obey what he says. If you, obey, if you love me, obey my commands. Covenant renewal is... Trusting that God is enough, remembering what He has done, relying upon that in our right stand with God, and then out of a joy, reflecting, imaging what He's done for us. Does that make sense? That's, I, think, I think that's kind of the picture He's showing here in this renewal. The things that He references are, I'm the only God, monotheism, I'm the only God, and then just a series of remembrances. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Remember what I've done. I've delivered you. I'm with you in your sojourning in this foreign land. And I will gather you in. Right? And we can trust him. Any other questions? Any comments, questions? Outrage to be expressed. All right, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us in calling us to yourself, of giving us Christ, of calling, causing us to remember what he has done in this season of his passion, heading toward the cross and ultimately toward the resurrection of Easter Sunday. I pray that you cause us to remember what you've done, this marvelous thing. The second person of the Trinity takes on flesh to die fully God, truly man the only sufficient sacrifice for our covenant breaking help us trust him more and despise all these yipping little idols that, that nip at our heels calling for our attention and our affection cause us to be faithful to your covenant loving you and you alone and in that, loving each other as unto Christ. Pray for these things in His name. Amen.